Welcome to episode 11 of my Behind the Business podcast, a music industry podcast where I have been chatting to a whole host of different people in the music business. We've had 10 episodes. Those of you who have already listened to those 10, thank you so much for getting involved. Um, episode 11 is an exciting one for me. Uh, it's with Anne Harrison of SSB Solicitors. Um, for those who are currently doing a music business degree or those of you who are thinking about doing a, bus- a music business degree, Anne Harrison has literally written the book on the music business. Um, her book, Music the Business, is now in its seventh edition. Uh, it's a book that I recommend everybody has. I'm not on commission, honest, uh, but it's a book that is very, very useful for anybody in any area of the business. It's a book that I that helped me through my music industry degree and has continued to help me since getting various jobs. I met with Anne at the SSB offices back in September of 2018 uh, in Hammersmith in London. And I know Anne from working together with her um, when I was at Peer Music. It was a great honour for me to work with Anne, um, bearing in mind that she wrote the book that helped me through my degree. Um, so working with her was, was a great pleasure, great privilege. We discussed a number of things, including the qualities of the current modern music lawyer, uh, the role of the current music modern music lawyer, as well as some of the kind of bigger topics going on at the moment, uh, including Article 13 of the Copyright Directive, as well as Brexit. So yeah, so massive thank you to Anne Harrison for getting involved uh, so early on in the podcast. Um, it would be lovely to sit down with her again and chip away at a few of these topics in much more detail. But until then, enjoy my conversation with Anne Harrison and I'll be back at the end. happy accidents and not always going in the right direction but by happy accident and things that came my way that I chose to to take up I've ended up where we're in a very interesting place you know but I was um, thinking about I was a sort of I grew up in a tiny tiny mining valley in South Wales one bus an hour going nowhere is how I describe it Mm -hmm. and um, it was there was nothing there. We, you know, the highlight of our day was hanging around on the, 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 the milk floats, you know, and it was just nothing there at all. And very low expectations for what we might achieve. But according to my mum, from a very, very early age, I was a stubborn little, little so-and-so, and I just didn't accept that this was it, you know. So my teachers were saying, well, you know, you will be doing... They, they had it in mind that I would be a language teacher because I was quite good at languages at school. Nothing wrong with teaching at all. I do an awful lot of it now, as you know, Dan. Mm-hmm. But um, at that point, I was thinking, okay, but I don't see myself in that role. I don't know what I do see myself as, but it's not that, yeah, yeah. you know. So 
I started to look around and see what else might be possible and went to the library and saw what other courses were available and what I might do with this language skill. Mm-hmm. Um, basically trying to get as far as possible away from Wales for a while. Um, so I picked all the colleges that were quite a long way from Wales right. and uh, didn't really care what subjects I was up for. Um, just that, you know, it, it had German in it somewhere. One, one I think, was German and archaeology at Reading. Goodness only knows why. Thankfully, I didn't get that one, so it was all right. But um, it, it, it's kind of, it just shows that you can't ever see really clearly where your life is going to be because as a 15-year-old, listening to David Bowie records in my bedroom in this tiny, tiny mining village, if you'd said to me that in 20, 30 years' time you will meet David Bowie, I'd have told you you were totally and utterly barking mad. Yeah, yeah. But it happened, you know. And so I just kind of, I'm just stubborn. And I think, you know, just wouldn't accept the constraints that other people were placing on me. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you think people who find themselves in music, law, choose law first or is the music the kind of the focus point of um it's an it's an interesting one because obviously when i started you, you couldn't choose a music law route it didn't exist okay. so all you had was the option of being a lawyer nobody would say to you oh yeah by the way you could be a media lawyer or an entertainment lawyer or you were just a lawyer you were a lawyer you ended up. and it tended to be either a criminal lawyer or a civil lawyer barrister or solicitor and mm-hmm. it was kind of quite black and white less choices really than than are available to people now and so I ended up by accident working in law firms that um, had some clients that were in the entertainment field I mean the first one was uh, uh, Attenborough uh, film work um, at one at my first post-qualification job mm-hmm. and I just loved working for these kind of people so it wasn't driven by a love of music in my case. It was a, it was the environment, the interest, the the, the subject matter of what I was dealing with was a heck of a lot more interesting to me than landlord or wills or trusts or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, but these days I think people do choose a path. Um, so I get people coming to me for you know advice as to where they should go next, and right. generally speaking, they are saying they want to be a music lawyer. And I'm almost cautioning them and saying, well, hang on a minute, try and do a bit more general first. Okay, that's interesting. Because you may not really know what a music lawyer does. And when you have exposure to other types of law, you might actually find that that also interests you. Because from the outside, there seems to be, there's two types of, I guess, options for bands and artists and managers. There's the very bespoke law firms that only deal with music and entertainment, and then there's the more kind of general law firms yeah. that have a department yeah. that does that. Um, and you're kind of suggesting that actually it's probably in the, especially the lawyer's best interest to keep their options open. Uh, well, I would say so, because when I was in charge of recruiting trainees at a, at a major big law f- entertainment law firm, we, they always used to come in saying they wanted to work in music, and, you know, and I would say to them, well, look, you've got to uh, do, do four different areas. You, music can be one of them, but you've got to do three others. And you'd be amazed the number of people that at the end of the two years said, 
well, we thought we wanted to be music lawyers, but we loved working in litigation. We loved, one of them loved property law. Who knew, you know? <laughs> and, and so quite often they didn't end up where they thought they were. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, if you have a really good general grounding in your training, I can teach you the music business. I can't teach you to, to be a good lawyer. Do you right. see what I mean? So yep. if you start off by saying, I'm going to be the best commercial lawyer I can be, then you want to become a music lawyer. I can mm-hmm. say, okay, so now we need to layer on top of that basis that you've got, a knowledge of the industry, a knowledge of copyright. Mm-hmm. If they've done some IP in their training, great, that's, yeah. an, that's an add-on. Um, none of those options were available to me. So, But with my case, it was just happy accident that I ended up learning on the job, in mm-hmm. effect. Is there, in your opinion, is there a, a type of person, personality traits that lawyers can all can kind of can benefit from um, in general is, is there something is there something about the type of person in, in the music area or like I think generally? in everything but yeah let's let's go with kind of music entertainment media in general because I think there is um, an added dimension when you work with uh, entertainers whether that be musicians yeah. artists writers whatever it might be um, Attention to detail is essential. So if you are one of those people that skates over a page and really doesn't want to know the detail, law is probably not for you. Because in, you know, like a 70 or 80 page long form recording agreement, all the meaty stuff is on page 65 when you're really bored (laughs) and you really, really want to get to the end of this. Mm -hmm. That's where it gets kind of quite interesting. So attention to detail, absolutely key. Um, And... I, I think it's sort of problem solving. You have to have one of those minds that kind of likes to get to the root of a problem and work out what's the best way forward. A lot of um, uh, lawyers are also interested in history. And okay. I think it's a similar thing. It's like taking a whole load of facts and trying to make sense of them. Mm-hmm. And that analytical kind of uh, sorting of facts, getting all the details right, um, follow it through, is, is essential for any lawyer, I think. But then on top of that, you have to decide whether you are quite good at being an advocate. You know, do you want to to talk it up in court or are you much more likely to be a sort of behind the scenes person? I was going to say, is there something kind of intrinsically that you need to be someone who is comfortable projecting, comfortable being... Um, I think leader, I think there's a role for the quiet man and the one that likes to shout their mouth off. Um, <laughs> Uh, I tend to be the one that will be quite, you know, assertive and state my point. I think the main thing is that the client has to trust you. So if you're the quiet man, but they absolutely know you've got their back and that you will never let them down, Mm -hmm. that's fine. But sometimes, particularly in the entertainment business, you have to portray that confidence in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Because there is, uh, forgive me, there is so much bullshit in our industry that you have to be able to see through that and uh, unpack it for the client so that when they are told, you know, they're, they're going to be selling millions, you have to go, well, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> and kind of unpack it for them so yeah. that they, they know what they're going into. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the industry. Now, what about the music industry still motivates you, still perks your interest? What 
is it about the music industry that you really enjoy kind of getting your teeth into learning more about I mean mostly it's the people um, I you know if, if I can have a smile and a laugh every day because you know the people are entertaining to be around mm-hmm. uh, creative people are very interesting people to be around on the whole you may not they may be difficult but difficulty coming from talent is fine. Yep. I really have no problem with difficult, talented artists. Okay. Difficult and talented artists <laughs> is a different matter. Um, but also, you know, there is so much changing all the time. I mean, at the moment, I'm getting trying to get my head around Bitcoin and where that might fit in. And first Bitcoin deal has just come through. Right. And, um, you know, uh, virtual reality, is that a thing? It's more a case of what do I invest my time into? You know, because there's so many interesting routes, some mm-hmm. of which are going to go absolutely nowhere. Some services that pop up one week and are gone two weeks later. You yeah, know, it's yeah. like, how much of my brain do I put into learning about what that is doing? Is that you something that, it, that, I guess, the this area of the industry is not struggling with but kind of the transient nature of all the different bits and bobs that are happening and whether or not it's worth bothering with. yeah indeed it is because you know we have to spot trends mm-hmm. so if a client comes to us they, they're coming partly for sort of just strategic advice as to where they might go or what kind of deals they might do yeah particularly as so much of it is now diy and so you know are they able to do it themselves? Do they need outsides? What do they need? How might they structure it? And in order to be able to effectively advise on that, we have to have a good overview of the industry. Mm-hmm. So an awful lot of what we do is trying to see if a trend has legs or not. If it has, then we have to invest time in getting to the bottom of it. And that's, I'm guessing that's the reason why you're trying to get to the bottom of Bitcoin, Bitcoin because, and blockchain. Because, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely around. convinced that Bitcoin is the future, but it's not going away, so we have to look at it and at least understand the issues mm-hmm. around it. And the same with um, with blockchain, which is obviously a, a Bitcoin and blockchain very closely related. But um, And then just the changes in the law that keep coming up all the time that you have to at least know the headlines of. Yeah, yeah. You know, Because one of the skills of a lawyer is knowing where to look. Mm-hmm. So we might be aware that there is a new law coming down through Europe, for example. We don't need to know every single line of every page of that law, but we need to know when it might kick in, and then we go and look for the information at that point. Mm-hmm. So it's more a big big picture overview that we need to keep up to date mm-hmm. on. What are you making of the, per, on a personal level, what are you making of the what the industry is becoming? at the moment everything that's happened recently I kind of want to steer away from some of the more kind of the not so pleasant things that have been happening in the entertainment industry but rather kind of the developments in technology the just you know the talent that's coming through what are your personal views of the music industry well it's funny enough Paul and I were talking earlier this morning about there are relatively few Big breakthrough acts this year, and that's a little bit of a challenge. Why is right. that not happening? What is a break a big breakthrough right now? Because I'm guessing it's pretty different from even 
kind of 2010. It's sort of, in essence, it's the same thing. It's an act that is coming from nowhere to, you know, kind of mainstream very quickly, breaking through from early promise into something that, you know, a major label is going to be interested in, Mm -hmm. something that is exciting that maybe will get beyond the first album into a more of a long-term career. It, It generally means breakthrough in terms of, the traditional signing a record label. Mm-hmm. But the other the interesting area of what's happening now is the fragmentation of the industry. So, yes, we've still got the majors and a fairly healthy independent route, but it's the, in, it's the DIY independent route that is the interesting one at the moment because we have clients who have no interest at all in engaging with the mainstream record industry. They, they are mostly streamed artists, they have such a successful career through streaming and life to some extent that they don't really need that sort of the, de- the big deal with Universal or Sony. And yep. so how do you service that client? What is the, what does that client need that, you know, it isn't the norm, isn't the kind of, oh, if you are that stage, you have to do this. It's like, hmm, what do you need now? Is that exciting yeah, for is. you here is it, is it kind of getting you involved in things that you wouldn't necessarily be involved with yeah I mean at essence you're still somebody you've got that, still that much closer relationship much with the closer creator who's keeping hold of their creation I yeah guess. they're keeping hold of their creation is that necessary for them do they need to do that is it that they get too hung up on ownership and in the bigger pictures getting lost um, we're finding that a lot of it is now global, so that the idea of you being crossing over is the big issue uh, for a lot of our artists. Though you might be a very successful grime artist in the UK, but are you able to sell that in the US or across Europe? It's a very fragmented market, mm-hmm. and as a result, you, you're having to redefine what success means. Because success is no longer, I'm going to sign a major record deal. No. Nope. You know, what is it? Does it mean I can give up the day job? Probably nine out of ten artists won't ever fully give up the day job, you know. In recently, with some of the, the artists that you've worked with, are you finding that their idea of success is realistic? Um, some of them are. Some of them are very switched on. The ones that have got, you know, sort of millions of streams know how to work that world Mm -hmm. they know it they understand it they probably understand it better than we do they know they market um, and they're quite clinical about it but Mm -hmm. there are still most of the people that come through the door still have that idea that they want to go home and say they've signed the big deal and that Mm -hmm. they've got the big check is it that they want to be for want of a better word famous rather than they want they want recognition. They want recognition for what they're doing. And the structure is still that, you know, you, you want recognition would come in the form of not how many streams you've got, but I've signed. It's like a footballer signing to the Premier League. You know, mm-hmm. you've arrived. You, yeah, you, yeah. you know, it's, it's, a, it's something that the, your, your mates who are not in this business would understand, mm-hmm. you know. And a lot of that still goes on. But ironically, of course, so many of those that sign those major deals when they come to an end, they don't want to go back into a major deal. They realise <laughs> that it is not all that it might yeah. be cracked up to be. Are you Some of those clients that have been part of this team or have worked with you for years and years, are you seeing more and more of them kind of asking, can I, can I 
get out of this? Can I go it on my own? I'm I'm personally I'm surprised that the house few really big big bands who have been going for a long time who kind of self-sustaining brands and mm -hmm. businesses of their own haven't just gone I don't really need the label anymore I mm. can kind of do this all myself well you see it, it is crucial that the team around them also feel that because right. I have clients who always self-release that they will do separate license deals for the US, Europe, Australasia. Every release is DIY. Mm -hmm. But they are supported by a superb management team who effectively are acting as the label manager, the project manager, who are making sure that everything lines up and comes out when it's meant to. Yeah. An artist is an artist for a reason. They're not business people, first and foremost. They are creatives who learn about the business. Mm -hmm. And so most of them love the idea of owning their own rights and doing it all themselves. But the reality is so different from that, that they need to have people around us whose main aim in life is not to be a creative, it's to be a business person and do all of that. But that's what I mean, that there are, and I'm, I'm talking people at, you know, the red hot, you know, the stadium bands yeah. of this world, that they've kind of got to this point where I'm just thinking, employ yeah. The people yourself and keep everything in house yourself rather than, but then maybe it's it's just easier yeah, it's, to, to some, stay with. Some do, some it it's easy. There's a check comes in, they don't have to think about all the royalty accounting and all of that kind of yeah. stuff. I mean, we are seeing more and more that are prepared to do what we call the label services type deals mm -hmm. where they are buying in the services that they need. Are you a fan of those? I am a, I am a big fan of those yeah. for the right artists. I mean, a commercial pop artist, that's never really going to work for. They do need the major spinning all the plates for yep. them. Um, but, you know, we have we have clients now whose, whose releases of records are really more driving either the live or branding and sponsorship. Right. So we have clients who don't really care so much how many streams there is of the new album or how many copies of it's you know so it's a means to an it. end. It's putting them back on the uh, in the public eye so that the brands want to be associated with them. We yeah. we have major clients here who can earn so much more from branding and sponsorship that they don't oh. go anywhere they don't care about the record deal as such. I've had I've had some really interesting chats with a lot of people so one of the things that I was trying desperately hard not to do was for this to be just a conversation with loads of branding people and loads of people. <laughs> um, but I've had some really interesting conversations whereby you know traditional record labels are now those people right we've got an asset now we need to match them up with a brand mm. and it's like you know the the Sony's the Universals and the Warners especially are becoming that more than more than labels. Um, that's, that's interesting because we, we've, we're seeing it from the other end that the managers and the artists together are deciding that this is a better and more lucrative route for them. Mm. Now that's never going to work for an artist who is a true songwriter recording artist, you know, because for them making the record is always going to be the main thing. Yeah. But if their business advisors are saying to them, you know what, if you hook up with I know, Couples or, you know, or somebody who is, wants to be associated with the same target audience as your music works for, mm -hmm. then it's additional income that enables them to do what they love doing. Yes. Right? So you have those artists who are, are never going to become pure brands. Mm -hmm. But then you have others who are very aware that their pop shelf life is very short. 
Mm-hmm. You know, a, a commercial pub artists, very few of them cross over into... I mean, Miley, Miley Cyrus might be a good example of one who did, because, mm-hmm. you know, from a child star across to a, an adult performing artist. But most of them don't cross, and they well, have a short life. Well, even then, there's, there's... More and more people are mentioning now about just the lack of festival headliners, new festival headliners yeah. or yeah. bands that you think are going to be, you know, will we see uh, a Rolling Stones again, someone who came out in the 90s who's still touring in yeah, the 2000s. I don't think we will. There, there will be one or two, but you know, we always play that game of what would be your lineup to replace a, a Stones and Who and Elton John and all of those. And it, it, it gets difficult to see mm-hmm. what that might look like. Um, but there are those, but I'm thinking more of the absolute pop artists, you know, who have a very short shelf life anyway. You know, they they may get sort of two or three years out of it if they're lucky. Right. And if they're going to sustain a longer career, they have to look at other things like branding and sponsorship mm-hmm. or, you know, and boring things Being like... Being a personality, yeah. I guess, you know, having multiple... Areas, being exactly. a spokesperson, being yeah, you know, being and does that things. mean that they can then become a TV presenter yeah, yeah, yeah. or you know it, it, it's much more a stepping stone to a broader entertainment career. Is that something that you find that you're helping them? With? Yes, yeah. I mean, now more than ever, I think strategic advice is is pretty crucial. I mean, we we get clients very early on who are looking to us to sort of give them a, a steer as to what they should do with their lives mm-hmm. and. Um, we, you know, it's a mixture of getting the right team around them. So we're very often matchmaking with managers that might suit them to put, you know, to move them to the next phase of their career. Yep. Uh, helping opening doors for them, saying, oh, we know that so-and-so is looking to sign this kind of music at the moment. Let's right. speak to them. You know, it's not that we shop deals as such, because really that's more the artist and manager's role. But we, we provide in- intelligence, information. You can, yeah, you can point people in the directions yeah. and we can open you know we can do an introduction we can i mean it's funny because you had a conversation before we started this with one of my colleagues and you know you you're, you're exchanging information there that's what we do all the time we mm-hmm. bump into people coming into the office leaving the office I've, I've seen me come out of a meeting here with one client one of my colleagues is waiting with another one, and by the end of the conversation between the two of them, they're actually agreeing to collaborate. The two <laughs> artists, you know, and you sort of so it's like finding those connections, matchmaking, and linking people up. What's frustrating you the most about the current music industry? What's the stuff that really just think, oh God, I've got to deal with that again? Or Oh, I'm not sure that anything is. Oh, that's nice. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of really tedious stuff, like why do the royalty accounting departments never get it right? <laughs> yeah, but that that's kind of, it sort of doesn't frustrate me. So it's just, oh, for goodness sake, can you not ever get your systems to work? Right. You know, it's signing a new deal and going, okay, the first thing I'm going to have to do is to go to the accounts department and tell them how to do this. Well, cons- you know? considering, as you've already pointed out, the industry is becoming much more pieced together from multiple places it's becoming you know you have your there's multiple revenue streams coming in from everywhere else 
Uh, it's less territory by territory because mm. it's lots of online stuff. Yeah. And one of the big things that has frustrated the industry as a whole for quite some time is the the lack of any data systems talking to one another <laughs> yes. well enough. Is that still a really big issue? Oh, I am sure at high level it is a massive issue. Um, I, you know, I've attended conferences in the States where people <clears throat> are kind of tearing their hair out that there's we still two, haven't got two it right. databases <laughs> that are perfect, wonderful, beautiful databases, all nice clean data, but they don't talk. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is proprietorial. You know, they do not want to share their uh, the, the algorithms or whatever it is that's sitting behind this data. Yeah. Um, I've heard pleas for, oh, for goodness sake, put that to one side. We can together be much better than the two halves. There's always going to be, as long as there is value in that IP, people are going to want to protect it. So mm-hmm. it, it, it sometimes takes a case where you have to buy out your rival so that you can then combine the two. I am sure that at, at a level that's way above my pay grade, there are people talking about how to combine databases. You know, <laughs> All I see is that the kind of sharp end of it, it which is... Really? You forgot about that track again? How many times do I have to tell you? You know? <laughs> so it's it's kind of much more that sort of frustration really. What does Anne Harrison listen to? <laughs> What's, what are you int- what are you yeah, this, liking at the This moment? is the bit that you're gonna to need to cut out because <laughs> no. the fact is that I don't actually listen to that much music that isn't sort of listening to the client's latest release or, or, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, because... Uh, That's a lot of, a lot of people say the same, it's, same It's sort of, it's like a busmas holiday, you know, it's like when I'm not working, I will probably listen to some jazz or some Americana or something that is kind of way away from what I normally do. But then, so from a work perspective... What do you like to hear when clients or prospective new clients send stuff in? Um, it, it's more that it doesn't in a way matter what the music is if it is great mm-hmm. and I can sort of see that it has some form of commercial legs to it. Okay. So my personal taste sort of doesn't come into it, but there are certain areas that I really don't understand as well as others so for example techno that is just so not my area but we have a, a, a guy here that it is, he lives and breathes it mm-hmm. and so if something comes in that needs a knowledge of that part of the industry I will probably pass it and say look I, I can do the contracts for you but I am not the best person for you to do this my colleague over here is much better at uh-huh. it so we will sometimes shift things around like that because we want to give the best service possible to that client. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my, my go-to, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a rock chick, really, nice. and, and rock is not working in the UK and hasn't for years. So the chances of, us, of me getting a piece of music through that I really, really love that I can do something with is fairly slim at the right. moment. So it's more a case of, okay, have you got a piece of work here that other people are going to want to see as being, you know, worth, worth investing in. Mm-hmm. And can I help you with that? Is, you know? is is the firm SSB that you're working with, are you working with scouts? Do you have people for you going out and trying to find you the next 
big things, or are you kind of waiting for things to come to you? We we used to have a scout, um, and we forgot he was on the payroll because nothing had come in for a while, and I was I was asking, what what's this payment for? Oh yeah, so we stopped that. Right. Um, it's more like I was explaining just now. It's that matchmaking role. So um, some comes to us. Some, I mean, we're out having lunch or coffee or, you know, meeting up with A&R people, yeah. with, with managers, with publishers, anyone who might have a lead on something interesting that's going down, either be interesting for us as a potential client, but also, you know, interesting as a potential hookup for an existing client. Mm-hmm. So we might hear through having a coffee with someone that they, a manager is looking to take on a new act. And we think, oh, that's interesting because this client over here is looking to be managed. So can we make a connection? There? Right. So it's a bit of a mixture of, I don't do it so much now, but we have three or four lawyers here that are out seeing, seeing our acts three or four times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much. We, we hate that idea of ambulance chasing. You know, we're, right. we're not rushing up to the band after they've come off stage going, hi, we thought you were great, come work. You don't have us. a quota that you need to fill every year of new clients no, and all that sort of no, stuff. No, no, no. And, and in fact, we're so low-key on our uh, promotion, promotion of ourselves because it sounds arrogant, but we don't actually need to do it. So much comes to us just because yeah. of our track records that it was only until two weeks ago that we, we actually got a website. And that, was be- and that was because I was going on this New Zealand trip and I said, I cannot go all the way down there. And then they try and look us up and find nothing online. <laughs> so we now have a very, very basic website. No, but we don't, we don't play exactly ball. exactly what it needs to do. Well, we don't play ball with the in- in- industry you know, books. and mm-hmm. you know, We don't appear in the guides. We never pay to be included in anywhere. Okay. So it's more a case of they come to us and then we go out there and we make connections with people. Mm -hmm. Moving on a little bit, you've spent time as a freelance on your own Mm. role with your own company and you've spent X number of years at a number of bigger firms. Um, do you have a preference having done both or is it kind of, was it a a kind of a thing that you did at the time and it all worked the way that it was meant to work (laughs) until it didn't? Nothing, well, it was a bit of that, but nothing ever quite like. I mean, mean, what's the big kind of difference between the kind of that, that big law firm idea and then the independence and the individuals that are doing it? It's control, essentially. Right. The bigger the company, the less control you as an individual have. And is that detrimental to the client? No, I don't think think so. I think that's a personal thing. Okay. Um, Some people thrive in a big collegiate atmosphere. Most people in the moose business, if you look at the size of the law firms, they tend to be not not these big, huge corporate sort of 300, 400 people. Mm -hmm. But when I started in the industry, it was uh, with a firm that was 30 people. By the time I left it 17 years later, that company had got to 170 people. So it had changed beyond recognition. It was no longer the right place for me. So I went out on my own for 14, 15 years, but then came back in to work as a consultant here a couple of years ago because 
it was kind of getting lonely out there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of you know nice to be amongst people. It but felt like it. Well, it's from talking to you previously. It, whenever you said it, it was always it was just it was the right time. Yeah, and the right it was place the right time, and the right people. The right people. I've kn- I've known Paul, the owner here, for over thirty years. He was briefly a trainee of mine back in way 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 back for about three months nice. which I never let him forget <laughs> <laughs> but he wanted somebody to help him run things here and I like running things <laughs> so it was so it was, it was kind of it was for him it was getting to a point where actually he was looking at kind of strategically yeah. expanding and bringing on the right yeah, people I mean, we, and we've, we've, we've bought the building next door so we're going to expand into that nice. so there's a lot more kind of management of things required and he's not a manager he just wants to go and do what he does which is be a great lawyer you know mm-hmm. so um I, I kind of quite like ordering people around so it's quite fun <laughs> it, it works <laughs> and, and you, you also kind of work directly with the artists side yes. of things but you also have publishing clients um first met you when we were working together at Peer Music. What's your preference in there? Because there's obviously there's different intricacies with how those relationships work. You're doing different things for a for a multinational publisher than you are with a singer-songwriter or something like that. So on a day-to-day basis, what's where's the preference? Where's the where where's the motivations? The preference has always been to work for the talent. Mm-hmm. Always, I never could have foreseen myself working for a Universal or a Sony. I am right. not that kind of corporate person, so preference would always be for the writer, the performer, the manager. You know, the kind of entrepreneurial talent end. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting when I took up the business affairs job because um, it's part time, so it gives me a kind of foot in both camps. But it was very useful, I think, to my general advice to my clients to find that. Um, the seeing the other side of the coin, the the pressures that are mm-hmm. on a major publisher to get deals done, to uh, to do the right kind of deal, and the pressures on the in-house lawyers was quite interesting for me to learn, yeah. because it meant that um, I could then understand better how to to work with those in-house people for myself when I was dealing with my own clients. Right. So, for example, you know, to know the time pressures these guys are under, to know that they've got limited resources and you have to grab it quickly and mm-hmm. move on. So I, I found it really interesting. But, I, again, it's an independent publisher. It's a family-owned company. Yeah, yeah. there's a different vibe. There is there a different vibe to, to, to answering to shareholders or needing to get your position in the... In, in, in the publishing world for your shareholders to be you know seeing that they're going to get a return on their money that's the sort of world I don't want mm-hmm. but the independence you know family controlled or entrepreneurial controlled companies is definitely me for those not really in the know what is the kind of the big difference between I guess the the day job being a lawyer for for artists and being in-house business affairs counsel for a for a publisher or for any sort of company? Generally, it's, it's sort of a question of degree because you, you, well, no matter what side you're on, you're hoping to end up with a fair deal, a balanced deal that works for both sides. Mm-hmm. But, for example, if I were work for a songwriter, I might have more of a focus on, you know, how long are they going to have my rights for, what controls can I have over what they can do with my rights, that kind of side of things, mm-hmm. okay? Whereas if I'm looking at it from the 
from the in-house perspective, it might be, well, yeah, of course we're going to give them all those consensus controls, but what I really need to know is that these people are going to deliver me songs regularly, you know, that I'm going to get a minimum number of songs a year. So the, the focus is somewhat mm-hmm. different. Um, ultimately, you, you, both sides are trying to get to a fair deal. But what might be a fair deal for in-house might not be the same as what an artist might mm-hmm. want. Are you... Here's a weird one. When you're working with a new artist or you work with an artist, are you in a position to kind of to take it to the companies that you're also working to? Or is that a little bit of a conflict it, of interest? It's, a, it's, it's more than a little. It's a big conflict of interest. <laughs> um, but the the industry... In I mean, the, you, you've got an idea about the people who work at those places. Yes, you think, actually, this would be a really good yes. fit. You do know that, and it does happen, and it has happened with that publisher very recently. Mm-hmm. One of their big acquisitions came as a result of an introduction from me. Right. But what you have to do is to make sure that that conflict is managed. Yeah. So everything has to be transparent. You have to get both sides to agree that they understand that the, you know, the, 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 the lawyer has a link to the company that they're thinking of doing the deal with. Mm-hmm. You have to step back and let somebody else do the legal work on it so that there is a a separation and and a transparency there. Mm -hmm. Um, And as long as everybody is above board and clear and happy with the situation, it can work. But, you know, every day we're dealing with conflict issues here because it's such a small industry. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll find we we work for a a record producer who then ends up producing one of our clients' albums. And, you know, every day we we, we do a conflict search. We send an email around saying, okay, does anybody act for anybody in this scenario that we need to be aware of (laughs) and, you know, manage it? Conflict is a problem, but it's not an insurmountable problem. You just have to be very grown up and transparent about it. Mm-hmm. I would be missing an opportunity if I didn't ask for your personal and professional opinions on what the hell's going on with article 13 and the EU directive at the moment it's something that I think my students are going to get bored senseless with with me talking about it's a fairly big issue it is Uh, the last time that I heard you speak uh, you were talking very neatly eloquently and interestingly about the the relationships between IP creators and utilizers especially online um, so yeah, so I, I I had to bring it up on whether or not you know what what you know what's going on from your perspective. Do you think it's all positive, seeing as it's just been past-ish, I guess. Well, I think that's it. It's past-ish. Yeah. Um, it's a huge step forward in uh, conceptual terms because <laughs> up till now, the uh, service providers like you know Google have said it's not our fault, Gov. So any user-generated content that's on our services, we're, we're not responsible for. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we're the telephone company that provides you the telephone line. We don't know what you're saying when you're chatting on our telephone line. Same kind of notion. And they've used this um, old um, sort of formula of safe harbour, oh. which is an old legal concept that gets them out of jail on this or has done up till now. And so the huge conceptual shift is that Article 13 of the new Copyright Directive um, does foresee circumstances in which 
they can be held responsible for policing what is on what content is on their services Mm -hmm. now you can imagine that they really really do not want this to happen Mm -hmm. because the cost to them of policing is going to be enormous Uh, the restrictions it's going to place on the freedom of the internet is also enormous Um, some people feel that it shouldn't happen because the internet it's the end of the meme yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, so possibly, um, you know, there are some that say that's not what the web is about. World Wide Web was about connecting, not putting barriers up. So it's not a simple kind of uh, conclusion, this one. But what was, what was not happening was these service providers were saying it's not our fault, Gov. But neither were, but they were on the other hand making financial gains from it, which they were not sharing with the people whose content was being used and abused on these services. Mm-hmm. And so we were, probably wouldn't have felt the need to push it quite so hard if they'd actually come to the table and talked to us and said, "Okay, we're making a lot of money from your content. There's a, there's a gap here that we need to plug. You know, the so-called value gap that keeps yeah. uh, coming up, and and a way of." Of, of bridging that would be to have made a deal with us, mm-hmm. which Spotify did, for example, right? Um, instead of that, they went, no, you know, arrogantly, no, not our thing. We And we're not, by the way, we might make some money off this, but we're not giving you a fair cut of it. So hence, you know, the, the need to push at a political level. Mm-hmm. The big problem with, well, two problems with it. One is that the UK may not be able to get the long-term benefit from it, uh, depending on when it comes into force. Because with us leaving the EU in six months' time, even though there is a transitional period of a couple of years, we do not yet know whether if a law is passed in that transitional period, we get the benefit of it. The detail That's is a whole not other conversation. The detail is not kind of fleshed <laughs> out. So what we need to therefore as a, in the UK is be aware of is that if, for example, we cannot take the benefit of it, we have to have a similar or parallel law of our own in the UK. Mm-hmm. That is going to be a big problem because Europe is being far more l- kind to the creatives and the content providers than the UK has. So, so it looks as though the UK would be more inclined to side with the, with I- the IP, I- ISPs. So, ISPs. Yeah. To, they have been lobbied very, very hard. And there is a view within government that we don't need that kind of protection and that actually we need the ISPs to open things up for education, for uh, other purposes. Right. So their focus is, is different. Mm-hmm. Their focus is on the value of the internet for, for education and training. So we would have to lobby all over again to get the UK government to uh, p- pass a similar law. Right. And I'm not hopeful. So this isn't going away anytime soon. It's not going away anytime soon. And the other side of it is that uh, although Article 13 has gone through the first stage, it now has to appear in a formal directive that will be passed through the, the, all the various levels mm-hmm. of the EU. And you can rest assured that the ISPs are going to be lobbying harder than ever behind the scenes. Is this something that is genuinely worrying for yourself and for others in your position um, and for, you know, I mean I'm, I, I would I would kind of assume that it, that it is do you know what but, it's kind of not I, I, it's not sort it of, kind of it's, it's not something I wake up worrying about but in practice of course if, acting for the creatives if the creatives can't get a fair return from the way their music is now being used mm-hmm. then ultimately yes it's a huge problem for yeah. us so we are interested but we have vested 
um, our trust in the industry bodies that are lobbying on our behalf, who seem, who have our uh, the interests of our clients at, at heart, mm-hmm. and they've they've won this first hurdle, which is massive. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's just the first the in first a long hurdle. battle. I want to finish with asking and we're talking about your writing yeah um you literally wrote the book <laughs> on the music industry um did, was that something that you chose no. to do that was someone came to you and asked you to do it are you still enjoying that are you still enjoying kind of being asked to tweak it every couple of years or? i i love the opportunities it's given me of, of the one thing i ever did that has opened more doors for me mm-hmm. than anything else and a lovely man called Stuart Slater, who was an A&R man in the music industry, moved across to book publishing. And his role was to try and find interesting projects, mostly autobiographies with artists and things. So mm-hmm. he said to me um, that we don't have a UK version of Donald Passman's US book. Uh, I think I've heard you talk to um, artists when you're going through contracts with them. I think you have the style that could do this. I didn't want to do it. The firm that I was with would not give me any space or time to do it. Right. Stuart worked away at me and eventually I I agreed. He flattered the ego enough that I accepted. (laughs) But I had to do it all in my own time because the firm I was with did not support it on any level. Wow. And so that was quite tough. And I spent 1999 Christmas holidays rewriting the book for the fourth time. So I don't have much remembrance of the... the oh, so next year's the 20th anniversary. Next year, next year will yeah, be the yeah. 20th anniversary, wow. yes. Um, and it's in its seventh edition, and I I enjoy doing each uh, each update, actually, because I get to get to grips with all the details of the laws that have changed and everything else. Are those updates going to start coming thicker and faster? I would love it if they were much more frequent, okay. that they were dropped as a kind of a regular monthly update. But the publishers are just not quite that geared to that kind of service, you know. My next question was from someone who has spent the last two years in the education system and spoken with a lot of students at various different places. Is there opportunity, is there conversation about your textbook being made into different formats? Audiobooks? video tutorial you mm. know each chapter a different thing because because that's where things in my personal view is is heading now it's less a, sure. it's away from from written and it's other forms of media funny enough you're the second person this week has asked about an audio version uh there are no plans to do an audio version but this other person Get Stephen Fry in to read it <laughs> this other person offered to do it because he does voiceovers okay but, um, he says that he's getting a lot more requests for um, audio rather than the written page. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, though, even though it's been available as an ebook for two editions now, by far the biggest seller format is the hardback. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of that because the publishers see that, they're not interested in investing in the cost of making an audio or a video version because they just keep selling the hardback. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, is it is it as simple as that? Is it's, when it's when the hardback sales drop, they'll it's, start thinking about what else they need to do. They don't spend any money on it because it's what they call a catalog item, so it's never promoted except to the extent that I promote it. So. Yeah. Um, it, they won't spend any money on it unless they thought they would get the return on it. Okay. Uh, but I always talk to them about these possibilities, mm-hmm. so they may they may do. But I, I think it, it's it's certainly something that I think would work. It would be regular updates in whatever form that that mm-hmm. took, you know, online or podcasts or people dialing in, you know, coming into a forum at a particular point in time to have a conversation about latest yep. developments. All of those kind of things are possible, but because the publishers own the copyright in that book, I can't do anything with that book mm-hmm. that doesn't involve them. Right. And what about your other writing? I remember some wonderful <laughs> conversations over coffee in Richmond about other bits and pieces. I've still got the wonderful present, the book that you gave me about writing um, when I was first chancing my arm with it. I'm still just chancing my arm with it. It's very much stuff that nobody else is allowed to read (laughs) just yet. That's okay. But yeah, so how how is that? Are you still still kind of chipping away at that stuff? I am. It was was your love of history, I believe. It's my love of history. Yeah. I'm actually, next week supposed to be on a writer's retreat in Scotland Lovely. which I try and do once a year there's a fabulous place up north of Inverness that does it but it's been so busy this year that I've had to postpone it so I'm not going this year so oh, the okay. book I'm afraid has gone somewhat on the back burner right uh, everyone would say oh but if you really wanted to write it you'd find the time well I haven't found the time <laughs> at the moment so it's it's I, I, I'm still doing an online writing course with uh, Berkeley College in uh, San Francisco. Okay. So I keep my hand in writing. Because it's still very much a passion. It's creative writing yeah, and I enjoy yeah. doing it. Okay. Yeah. And last one, what is ahead? What's So we're in um, September now. This is probably going to go out in January. Mm-hmm. So what does 2019 hold? For, uh, for yourself, personally, professionally, for SSB, is okay. there any kind of interesting things that you can mention at all? Um, I mean, it'll be more of the same. Um, I will continue as a consultant here, um, probably over time slowing it down a bit. Um, I'm busy mentoring other people here and bringing through um, other um, less qualified, you know, sort of less experienced people. Yep. Um, so there's a mentoring role there. Firm is growing expanding into next door so all sorts of interesting opportunities opening up there um, and in the industry I don't see any major major shifts coming Brexit is a, a, a jazz album just yet <laughs> Brexit is the big unknown currently we I personally don't think it's going to have the enormous changes that everybody's fearing okay um, but it is an unknown so that's I suppose what we'll be watching a bit next mm-hmm. year lovely stuff Thank you very much for your time. All right, sir. My pleasure. Massive thank you to Anne Harrison for that conversation. As I said, this is one of the ones that I would have been uh, most excited to to release. Um, Anne is an amazing person. Very, very. Um, helpful, uh, very, very open to questioning, does a lot for education um, around the UK and beyond, actually. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, 
get a hold, get a copy of her book, Music the Business. It's a very, very useful thing to have on the shelf uh, for those who are already in the business as well as those who, who want to get into it. Um, so it is well worth the money. Again, thank you very much for coming back and listening to this podcast. I hope to get better at these intros and outros at some point. Um, but until then, you'll just have to have to get used to me stuttering and stammering my way through all this. It's very odd. Please do follow the podcast on Instagram at Behind the Business Pod. Um, I'm hopefully going to be setting up not only a website for the pod, but also Facebook pages. And there might even be a YouTube channel in the works. So watch this space for that. Um, please do get in touch with me via Twitter at Danny Champion. And as I've mentioned on previous podcasts, please do email me at the show at behindthebusinesspod at gmail.com. I want to put a special podcast together over the summer where I get some of the past guests to answer some direct questions from those of you who are listening in so please do get in touch so I can pose those questions that you have to them. Uh, in the meantime thank you very much indeed for listening and I will return next week. <laughs>